February is Heart Health Month. There's no better time to focus on heart-healthy habits like eating more dark chocolate, groundbreaking results from Harvard's massive Cosmos study on cocoa flavanols show a 39% reduction in the risk of cardiovascular death among participants consuming cocoa flavanols daily. I search high and low for cocoa products that deliver meaningful amounts of healthful flavanols with great flavor and minimal sugar. I'm thrilled to have found Flava Naturals. Flava Naturals Performance Dark Chocolate Bars and Cocoa Powder deliver five to nine times the flavanols of typical dark chocolate. Their secret is sourcing premium, high flavanol cocoa beans and processing them naturally. The result is decadent dark chocolate with the flavanol levels needed to help improve your blood pressure and cholesterol levels, possibly reduce your chance of heart attack and stroke. I use it every day. To order, just go to flavanaturals.com. That's flavanaturals.com. There you'll find details on Harvard's Cosmos study and great recipes, too. That's flavanaturals.com. Welcome to today's Intelligent Medicine Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Ronald Hoffman, and the subject of today's podcast is female incontinence. Now, that doesn't sound like too appetizing a subject, but it's an important subject because you just wouldn't realize how pervasive a problem this is. So today I've decided to interview uh, the co-author of uh, a very, very comprehensive guide to dealing with this problem. And no, you don't have to be resigned to a life of using uh, absorbent pads because there often are fixes. The book is Mind Over Bladder, a step-by-step guide to achieving continence by Dr. Jill Mora Rabin. She's an MD. Uh, She writes this along with uh, Gail Stein, who I believe is a former patient, and uh, one of her medical associates, uh, Danielle O'Shaughnessy, MD. Uh, the book uh, just out, and uh, I think it's a essential book for women who suffer from this problem. So uh, welcome to the program, Dr. Rabins. Pleasure having you on Intelligent Medicine. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be here. Okay. Well, first of all, you, you are what is termed a urogynecologist. Okay. What in the heck is that? A urogynecologist is actually an OBGYN who took a fellowship, a subspecialty in urology, specifically female urology, or these days, it can be someone who trained as an MD in urology in their residency and took a fellowship uh, in uh, OBGYN and female pelvic medicine. You can come at it from either direction. So it's basically a, a doctor who takes care of women for gynecologic as well as urologic issues. Okay. And uh, and it's a little bit of a niche to specialty. So if you uh, you know want help with this problem, can just any doctor help? Or is it worthwhile searching out uh, one of you, your rare breed of uh, specialists? Well, actually, you know something? It's become the fourth boarded subspecialty area for OBGYN. Mm-hmm. And along with, for example, uh, infertility and uh, GYN uh, cancer medicine. Um, and it is um, and high-risk pregnancy. 
So it's not as rare as it used to be, and that's good because we know that incontinence and prolapse, which is when the organs uh, drop a little bit and uh, get a little lower, uh, that affects two out of every five women under 60 and three out of every five women over 60, 60 and over. <clears throat> Excuse me. So basically, this is a not an uncommon problem affecting women of all ages. And if you have a doctor that you can talk to and bring your concerns and write your questions, and I don't know uh, about you, but when I go to the doctor, I forget what I'm supposed to ask. So I always come out with my questions written down. And um, you can talk to a doctor who will listen. And that can be a general practitioner. Uh, it can be a family medicine doctor, an OBGYN, a urologist, or a urogynecologist. And generally, if you do need to be referred to a specialist, um, we would be uh, one of the people that you could see, a urogynecologist, um, by referral. Or if you just call us, uh, we can generally see you uh, without a referral. Either way. And, and this is a, a very, as you say, a very pervasive problem. Uh, almost the majority of women uh, who are past the age of menopause uh, experience this from time to time. And, and the consequences are, are very dire because it causes a great deal of shame, depression, uh, isolation. You know, sometimes uh, women become phobic about uh, sex or about uh, leaving the house. Uh, and it may actually indirectly cause dehydration because some women, you know, literally put themselves on a water fast from time to time uh, to avoid embarrassing uh, incidents, right? Absolutely. And, and the issue with uh, dehydration, um, as you know, is it can lead to bladder infections uh, and constipation, which can make it um, more difficult to go to the bathroom and you can end up um, straining to uh, produce stool. And that can further, even further damage the pelvic floor. So this, you're right, uh, Dr. Hoffman, this is a, a very uh, serious problem. And actually, for older women, this is the second most common reason that women enter nursing homes, because they did not get treatment for this, and they have incontinence. And this is really a shame, because most of the time, if you catch it early enough, and even if it's later in the game, uh, there's a lot we can do to reduce the leakage, and in many cases, uh, cure the leakage and the prolapse. So, so it's not inevitable. It's not something you have to be resigned to. Uh, you know, that's just a, a, an untreatable consequence of aging. Absolutely not. There are so many reasons that women uh, leak urine more than men. And uh, some of those are that we have shorter urethras. Our urethra is two to two and a half inches long. We have babies. Um, we go through menopause, lose our estrogen, uh, and uh, uh, ex excess weight or coughing, constipation and smoking and coughing that comes with that. Many reasons we leak uh, more than men. Um, we actually uh, only leak when the bladder pressure exceeds the urethral pressure. The urethra is the little tube that goes from the bladder to the outside world. And if there's a problem with the nerves or the muscles or the connective tissue, or more two or three of those, that will produce incontinence and prolapse. And sometimes people have both dropped organ and leaky organ, or just the incontinence. And incontinence can affect the stool as well, the rectum as well. So again, it's always nerve muscle or connective tissue. So our job is to find out uh, whether it's early, you come to us early or come to us if you've had this issue for decades. We find out what the problem is. We diagnose what the actual problem is. 
and we make a treatment menu of options, an individualized treatment menu, and we go through those with you to decide what you want to do about the issue, about which treatments you choose and in which order. So this is very, very treatable. Uh, even if people have been having this incontinence for you know, 10, 20, 30 or more years, we can help people. And, and it's very patient-centered. And, you know, your book is sort of divided into, uh, I mean, it's not formally divided, but it's it seems in terms of describing the therapies, you know, you talk about some low-tech, simple interventions, uh, and then you also talk about some of the new uh, innovative high-tech fixes that are available uh, via uh, urogynecologists and specialists, right? Correct, correct. You know, diet and lifestyle changes <clears throat> can be used for pretty much everybody can benefit from doing things a little bit differently to improve uh, incontinence or many other many other issues. Um, reduction of weight obviously has a huge impact on improving health, not just for your bladder and having less weight pressed down on your bladder, uh, but it also obviously uh, and probably primarily can help your cardiovascular health. So uh, these lifestyle and diet changes are probably the single biggest um, hope for people to improve their health. And an ounce of prevention really is uh, worth a pound of cure. That old adage really does does ring true. Okay, so the title of the book is Mind Over Bladder, and you do talk, not exclusively, about behavioral approaches to this. Is the implication that in, in some ways this is all in your head, or is it simply that we want to leverage behavioral approaches to uh, avoid more invasive uh, measures, such as taking medication or, or using surgery? You know, we talk about the mind-body connection, and it always makes me smile when I hear people say something like that, because uh, who separated them in the first place? The mind is part of the body, and it works together for bladder health as well as uh, total health. So basically, when it comes down to uh, talking to somebody, we can um, generally, from the history and the physical examination, very careful neurologic exam and a physical exam, a pelvic exam, which doesn't hurt we can pretty much figure out, uh, in combination with the history and physical, um, maybe a couple of low-tech tests, what the diagnosis is, and we can always do some more uh, sophisticated tests if we have to. But generally, uh, we can figure that out and, again, make the treatment menu of options. So just to take a step back for a minute, the three most common forms of incontinence, the most common form is probably um, the stress incontinence, the little bit of leakage when you cough, laugh, and sneeze. And uh, before I had mentioned nerve muscle and connective tissue, stress incontinence is a problem with weak muscle and torn connective tissue from gravity and age. The older you get, the more common it is. Childbirth, the more children you have generally, the weaker your pelvic muscles and torn connective tissue will be. Now, the connective tissue just connects the organ with the muscle, basically, that's what it, the name is what it, it does, mm -hmm. it connects. So you, you basically have weak muscle and connective tissue so that when you cough, you get a spurt of urine. And that happens because the bladder is not as anchored to the connective tissue and muscle as it was uh, when, when we were younger. Mm 
So that's called stress incontinence. And the other form is very common is the gotta go, the urgent continence. Mm-hmm. That's what you see on TV with all these ads. And, right. and that is when there's a nerve problem. So the nerves misfire and give the bladder a signal that it's okay to go uh, before the brain, the mind over bladder can say, no, it's not time to go. Is that so the, the so-called uh, key stop. in the door uh, incontinence? But, you know where you know you're, you're, you know everything's fine. You're in the car. You're, you're on the Long Island Expressway, long trip. It's okay. But then, you know, when you're unloading packages and coming up to your apartment, uh, all of a sudden you uh, discover that it's hard to hold things back. That's exactly right, Dr. Hoffman. Exactly right. That's called key in lock syndrome. The gotta go, where your brain. Uh, gets the signal that if the bladder's full and has to go too late. So the brain just can't say no to that contraction. And that urgent continence is a, is a neuromuscular problem. It's a misfiring, um, mm-hmm. or a not a, a non-suppression of that nerve contraction of the bladder where the brain, which does have the ability, generally speaking, with correct training to stop that contraction, uh, that neuromuscular contraction, uh, that is uh, the other form of incontinence, very common, urgent continence where the gotta go, we call it overactive bladder. Um, it's basically the brain not being able to uh, stop that contraction in time, and that's the voluntary nervous system, and there's an, also an involuntary nervous system, as as you know, which also is involved in uh, contracting the bladder without uh, when it's not supposed to. That's a neuromuscular problem, urgent continence, and the third most common is both, when people have stress and urge incontinence. Mm-hmm. And if you take those forms together, you've covered 90% plus of all forms of incontinence. So we find out what patients have, and again, we make a a treatment menu option. But I will tell you something very interesting. When you use the simplest treatments, the free treatments, these are free, Mm -hmm. uh, they work uh, beautifully. Yes, they work not not necessarily the only thing someone's going to have to do to help themselves, but it's on the top of the treatment menu for almost all of our patients. And when you, uh, for example, when you drink uh, the proper amount of fluid, and fluid is anything, it's not just water, it's anything you can pour is considered a fluid. If you and your physician figure out together what is your ideal fluid intake, you know, within a range, and you have most of that fluid in the first two-thirds of the day and very little after dinner, that will help, for example. And if you have the proper amount of fluid, um, and it's really based on your cardiovascular health because not everybody can have as much fluid as we would like them to. Their heart simply mm-hmm. won't tolerate it. But very healthy people who their heart healthy usually take your ideal body weight and you uh, take that in half. And that is the minimum amount of fluid you should have a day. So if you weigh, for example, uh, 150 pounds, you would say 75 ounces of fluid a day is a ballpark if you're heart healthy. And if you do that and have it the beginning part of the day or the first two-thirds, you'll be able to um, get rid of the fluid before. So you're not up all night going to the bathroom. And that's one way to approach in terms of fluid management. And if you do that, um, you're bound to have less urinary tract infections and constipation because you're having mm-hmm. adequate fluid. So it's, uh, it's not, not like you want to uh, dramatically mm-hmm. restrict fluids because there, there can be, uh, uh, that can be a, a backfire if you do that. Uh, it can be harmful. Exactly. And constipation and bladder infections. You don't want to do that. The other thing that we have people do is, uh, first of all, if you know you're going to 
cough, laugh, sneeze, and leak, we have you do what's called the knack, which is pulling up your pelvic floor before you sneeze or cough. Most people have a little premonition when they're about mm. to sneeze. You know, mm. you'll have that feeling. <laughs> right. So if you pull up your pelvic floor before that, we call that the knack, K-N-A-C-K, mm-hmm. and that will stop that will stop the leak or reduce the leak, for example. And if you have a problem with urgent continence, if you're going to the bathroom, because I hear this every day, I have my school teachers, my professional women, right. they will say, well, I can't, I can't go all day, so I hold it all day, yeah. and I go maybe twice during the day, and I'm up all night. Of course you're up all night. You're your body has to get rid of a certain amount of fluid. So I tell people, look, try to go to the bathroom, regardless of your age. Try to go while you're awake every two to three hours mm-hmm. while you're awake, and that will help you at night. Um, some people say, well, I can't. I'm out. I don't want to use the bathroom. Well, you know, nobody wants to use a bathroom that's that's really unpleasant. Right, especially these especially days with COVID. Days. You know, yeah. Yes, yes. So there are devices that you can carry with you that you can use. All you need to do have, is have a door that shuts, and you can void into these uh, into these female urinals, and they can be mm. even used in a car. Mm, so ingenious. I do have people carry those, yeah. yeah, to be able to at least empty your bladder mm. at least every three hours. Yeah. And in the morning, most of us go a, a number of times before we actually can start that two to three hour clock. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, we, we do have. I do have people these older uh, nurses who come to me in their 80s now, retired nurses, retired school teachers, where if you hold your bladder all day long or go only twice a day mm-hmm. at, the, at noon, at lunchtime, and you know, their bladders have forgotten to contract yeah. and they have what's called bladder hypotonia or atonia mm-hmm. and their bladder just, they have to end up catheterizing themselves. So you don't want to wait mm-hmm. uh, to do that. So you want to make sure to get this, yeah. uh, get this. Uh, they yeah, so strongly early. suppress the urge to urinate that they almost like lose the knack of uh, releasing uh, the muscles. Uh, but I've actually heard mm-hmm. it said in the classic experiment, you know, tell me if this is, you know, still holds true. Uh, they, they recruited volunteers and they said, okay, you know, we're going to put a little, uh, you know, timer on you. And uh, every time the timer goes off, you're going to go to the bathroom, whether you have to or not, you know, just, you know, let out a little bit, a few drops of urine. And, you know, they set the timer for every half hour and they did this for, you know, a short period of time. I don't know, the duration of the study was maybe a week or two. And what they discovered is that uh, after training these people to go to the bathroom more frequently, um, they got used to it and they needed to go more frequently. So the, the converse may be true is that you may want to retrain some people uh, to mm-hmm. uh, accustom themselves to the sensation of having a, a moderately full bladder go a little longer, you know, maybe see if they can uh, hold on. Right, exactly. And so what we have people do who say, I have to go to the bathroom, I always go every half hour. We have those people, the people who have the gotta goes, I say, stretch, stretch the interval. If you mm-hmm. go every half hour, so mm-hmm. next week, go every 45 mm-hmm. minutes. And little by mm-hmm. little, we try to get them to the every two hour mark. Um, we try to get them to the every two hour mark. Right. Uh, what about uh, the role of foods? Are there certain foods that may be incriminating foods when it comes to uh, urinary frequency? Yes, absolutely. So just to just to take a step back, we we have people stretch their voiding interval. And if people end up, they say, well, I only go at noon at the end of the day, we have them do the opposite. We have them start to go a little earlier. Mm-hmm. We try to get everybody to the two to three hour mark. Regarding foods, a very interesting question. There are triggers that um, some women have, some men and women have, that make the bladder 
are very irritated. And for some people, that is uh, caffeine. For mm-hmm. some people, it is an even and, decaf. And I think even decaf, yeah, because some, some irritating effect of coffee per se and not necessarily the caffeine in the coffee, yeah. Yes. And for coffee, for hot peppery foods, for some people, it's chocolate. Mm-hmm. Some people, it's alcohol, uh, ETOH alcohol. And uh, some people, it's some of the artificial sweeteners in particular. Um, there's one in particular that, that can cause a very irritative um, situation uh, for women. And that is because one of the artificial sweeteners um, actually turns to wood and alcohol in the brain and makes it so that the brain can't suppress that bladder contraction as that would, well. That would be NutraSweet, right? Uh, the, uh, That's correct. Yeah. Aspartame. Mm-hmm. Aspartame. Absolutely. Wow. Mm-hmm. So we have people, I have my patients eliminate, do an elimination diet for two weeks at a time, don't have any of the specific item, and see if their uh, urgency gets better, their mm-hmm. irritative symptoms get better, the gotta goes. And if that's not it, they move to the next uh, particular uh, potential, uh, you know, culprit. And uh, that's that's what we do. And many times, uh, you know, I have uh, this has helped people uh, really have less urgency and continence, so the brain can actually uh, stop that contraction, that neuromuscular contraction of the bladder. What about medication? I mean, they're so highly touted. I mean, you have only to turn on the TV to see ads for, you know, they've made this, uh, they've been given an acronym, OAB, overactive bladder. Do you have overactive bladder? And I mean, almost they've sort of pathologized something, which is kind of a natural consequence of aging, but yet they, uh, it has spawned a multi-billion dollar pharmaceutical bonanza. Yeah, you know, um, it, I try to stick to the to the medical aspects of these things, and the fact is, if you use the diet and lifestyle uh, situations and the scenarios that I've that I've reviewed, um, those will help. Uh, the, you know, the majority of the time. Now, um, we do have other therapies for people, and the medications are basically used if you have both stress and urge, mm-hmm. or uh, urge incontinence, and those can be very very helpful. And uh, I found that um, I found that in combination with something like physical therapy with a pelvic floor physical therapist or with me teaching them pelvic floor muscle exercise mm-hmm. uh, with biofeedback or you know, we can talk about that in a bit. Yeah. The physical therapy is really a, a, a wonderful therapy, both for stress and urge and mixed incontinence. Having said that, the medication, since you since you, you know, you asked the question, I will tell you that. Uh, with these commercials, uh, I'll tell you two things. First of all, these commercials, um, even my, my son, when he was little, uh, was saying, you know, mommy, they, they talk about this, this pill and then they spend the whole commercial telling you about the side effects. <laughs> right. So, yeah. uh, at, you know, at eight years old, he realized right. that there's an issue here. Smart kid. So yeah. the, 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 yeah. So, you know, the, uh, medications are very good when they're used. Um, intelligently and if for a specific amount of time, mm-hmm. they work really well to quiet those bladder contractions. Let's face it, if someone is uh, debilitated by urgency and continence, uh, you know, a, a, a course of medication to give them their lives back, to mm-hmm. give them the control. Maybe break the vicious cycle. Yeah. Invaluable. So it's, they, they're, they're pretty good, uh, but they have to be used yeah. intelligently and, uh, they, they do have side effects, but everything has side effects. The, the concern um, is about and, specifically, they have 
what are called cholinergic side effects, most of them. And, and that is actually not so consequential for, say, a 35-year-old, but for, you know, someone who is uh, elderly uh, with less uh, capability to degrade, break down, metabolize the medication, perhaps with some uh, early onset uh, cognitive problems, uh, can lead to um, dementia. And the studies document Absolutely. That. Yeah, the anticholinergics uh, are uh, the problem is cognitive problems. Then you have the um, the other class, uh, which is a sympathomimetic, which works very well to basically the anticholinergics stop the uh, bladder contractions, the unwanted contractions, which is great. Uh, again, with dementia is a not for everybody, but it isn't a known side effect. So a short course. Uh, they can be very useful. The par- the sympathomimetics work differently. They allow the bladder to fill a little bit more. It gives you a little bit more time for the mm-hmm. bladder to fill, mm-hmm. so it buys you time to get to the bathroom. Also, if uh, you have people have to be watched uh, for hypertension yep. with that, obviously. Yep. And uh, but these are well placed medications can be very very useful. But again, we make it as a menu, and we don't really have we don't really look at any one therapy as a forever type of therapy. Mm-hmm except maybe for the diet and lifestyle. Okay, great. You've laid down the groundwork for our discussion in part two. We divide our podcast into two parts. In part two, we're going to talk about some other uh, innovative approaches for dealing with um, incontinence and urinary problems, especially in women. Uh, we'll talk about biofeedback. We'll talk about uh, good old-fashioned uh, Kegel uh, exercises, uh, even uh, pessaries, uh, and some of the new uh, innovative uh, surgical approaches. Uh, also, an interesting form of uh, neurobiofeedback, which is being pioneered right. in the treatment of this problem. All that the is tibial in, nerve stimulation. Right. Yeah. All that is in the book, uh, Mind Over Bladder, a step-by-step guide to achieving continence by today's guest, Dr. Jill Rabin. We'll be right back. 